Focus on the Family Canada's Hope Restored Marriage Intensive Program is a proven program designed to save couples from the brink of divorce. For over 15 years, Hope Restored Marriage Intensives have helped more than 4,500 couples, and over 80% of those surveyed are still together two years after attending. If you or someone you know is facing a crisis in their marriage, please call Focus on the Family Canada today at 1-833-999-HOPE or visit hoperestoredcanada.ca to find out more. And the gospel truly sounded like good news to realize that God cares about me, that God loves me, that I can connect with the God of the universe, the God who created this planet. That's Philip Yancey with a really important reminder that the gospel is truly good news to those who are hurting. Philip joins us again today on Focus on the Family, and your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly. I'm John Fuller. John, last time we shared a powerful conversation I was able to record with Philip Yancey. If you missed part one, make sure to get the CD or download or find the video on YouTube. I'm thankful for Philip's insights on how we present the good news to a watching world. In the book of Matthew, in the Bible, Jesus told his followers, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's right out of Matthew 5.16. If you're a believer, you're called to be a faithful witness to the hope you've found in Christ. And today, Philip will offer you help as you seek to share God's love in a winsome way. And as we mentioned last time, Philip's book that uh, is the foundation for the conversation is called Vanishing Grace, Whatever Happened to the Good News? Philip has a fascinating perspective. He's spent years researching and writing about how Christians can be salt and light and live authentically, and I do hope uh, that you'll get in touch with us for a copy of this great book. Call 800, the letter A, and the word family, or visit focusonthefamily.ca. And Jim, here's how you began part two of your conversation with Philip Yancey. Philip, it's great to have you back for day two. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's a great conversation. I'm going to go deep quickly, Hmm. but, um, you know, pain often um, draws us toward God. Mm -hmm. It it seems, again, counterintuitive. Why would the Lord use suffering? But certainly Paul and others talked about that, what, what suffering produces, mm-hmm. hope, faith, etc. And, you know, for me, it's been my life's experience as a little boy who went through a lot of trauma, orphaned at a young age into foster care. Um, someone will ask me occasionally, you know, if you had to go through all that again and be where you're at with the Lord, would you do it again? I, absolutely. Yeah. So in that context address that because you've written a lot about it suffering yeah. leading to deeper relationship with god does it have to be that way philip <laughs> <Good question. laughs> i think of a phrase from c.s lewis and i'm always very hesitant to ever disagree with anything c.s lewis says yes. <laughs> but he used a phrase called pain the megaphone of god mm. he said god whispers to us in our good times but he shouts to us in our bad times And I understand what he's saying, but I would phrase it a little differently. Because when I hear that megaphone of God, I think of a football coach on the sideline yelling at people, do 50 push-ups, go run five miles. (laughs) I had that coach. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) And I I don't see God up there saying, oh, I'm going to teach Jim a lesson. I'm going to make them suffer, and then they'll turn to me. I I just don't see that. We could talk about why, but I would just change that phrase a little bit and say that pain is – 
is the hearing aid. Actually, it's something we can control. We can either turn away from God. Well, if it's a God like that, I'll never trust him. That kind of God again. Or we can turn up the volume and listen. What could I learn from this experience, which is what you did? You know, Philip, one of the, the big debates that we have, um, you know, those that excel in the material universe, right? Um, mm. You can be in conversations, and I think you were even in a book club that had this right. kind of diversity, and if, if I could call it that. But people that are accomplished, they may go to the Ivy League. Um, I met a man who... Uh, is the chair of religion and philosophy at a university. He had me come speak there. He talked about being a Christian at one time, but he went to Princeton Divinity School, and he said, mm-hmm. I read too much, and I <laughs> lost my faith. And I think in that context, uh, you know, how how do we speak in a world that trusts so much in the material world, and when it comes to faith, it's like, well, that's beyond what I want to deal with. I don't know about those things, and frankly, right now, I don't care about those things. That seems to be one of the battles, because I'm sure, like your book club, there are great people there. They just don't know the Lord, don't really have an interest, seemingly. Mm -hmm. I would get in conversations with people in my book club and ask them, okay, you're a member of Amnesty International. You care about human rights. Why, Why do you care about human rights? Well, because everybody does. I said, actually, everybody doesn't. There are dictators in the world who don't care about human rights. Um, The reason I care about human rights is because I believe everybody was created in the image of God. And that's foundational. I can't stop that. Why do you care about the environment? Well, because the the earth is in trouble. Okay, that's true. And I care about the environment because I believe God created the earth. It's part of his artistry. And it exposes sometimes people just have these assumptions of what's good and what's not good. And as you know, you've traveled the world. Not everybody shares those assumptions. We have to have a basis for them. We have to have a reason. And if you peel back Western civilization, the things that we value, human rights and education and art and beauty and those things, they came out of the church. They came out of Christians saying, these are what God is like. So therefore, as sub-creators, we're going to demonstrate that. Right. I mean, these are the attributes. Hmm. That we see in the character of God. Right. Right? At least how it's recorded in the scripture. Yeah. And I think that's pretty accurate. You you spent years rediscovering, as you said in the book, uh, the good news, you know, the good news of Christ. Describe what happened and what did that journey entail to rediscover? Well, I grew up in a a church that uh, was very biblical, they thought, but they came away with some different conclusions than, than I had to work through later. This was in the South, in Atlanta area, back when the Civil Rights Movement was just getting underway. And my church was racist. We actually had these cards, and if a person of color tried to enter the church, they would give them this card that said, basically, we know you're not a true worshiper of God. You're just a troublemaker. You're not welcome here. You're not allowed here. But if you want to know more about Jesus, call this number. (laughs) That was in your lifetime. That was was when you were a kid. That's absolutely true. It would have been in the late 1950s. That seems like something that might have occurred a century or two ago. Well, it was the last century. (laughs) It was... 1950-ish, 59 or so, yeah. When I realized that what the church had taught me about racism was wrong, that was a crisis of faith for me because I thought, well, if they're wrong about race, maybe they're wrong about the Bible, maybe they're wrong about Jesus. And it, it forced me to go and investigate for myself. And for a while there, I was deconstructing my faith. Can't believe that anymore. Can't believe this anymore. And, and fortunately, just as a, as a writer, 
I've been able over the years to pick up these things one by one. The Jesus I never knew. What is Jesus? Prayer, does it work? What is grace? I didn't feel much grace growing up. What is it? And and spend my life kind of going to the Bible, going to people I trust, and, and reconstructing my faith. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the difficulties, Philip, is we often um, – we're trying to project perfection when we're imperfect, even yeah. in this life as Christians. I remember talking to one uh, naysayer, and he said, well, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. And I said, actually, you're right, <laughs> because we can't live it perfectly. Yeah. We, we're going to have blind spots, and then we're going to have spots we know we're not doing well in spiritually, and we're not living it out the way we need to. It's called the sanctification process. You know, mm. We're not going to be the same, hopefully, 20 years from now that we are today. We're going to be better, deeper in Christ, living it better. And he seemed to appreciate that. And that's one of the problems is we're, we're, you know, we try to be perfect in the sight of people rather than broken. Yeah. I love that line. I'm a, I am a hypocrite. You're absolutely right. <laughs> and back to a phrase we mentioned earlier, holier than thou. Right. That's the same thing. There's really only one standard, and we're <laughs> less holy than thou, and I'm pointing to the heavens. Um, that's our standard. And Jesus said, be perfect. And his disciples said, no one could do that. And that's the point. Yeah, you're right. So do you have a fallback? Here's the fallback. There's grace and there's forgiveness. Right. Um, because none of us can make it on our own merits. And by the way, that's what makes it the good news. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, know, you don't have to earn it. Exactly. And it's like we flip it on its ear and we tell people, oh, you got to be good. You got to behave right. And then you get it. That's not what Jesus said. You you made a trip to Kazakhstan. You may be the only other person I know. I visited Kazakhstan right. as well, so the two of us. I was more like 93 for me, but um, that same area. What happened to you that reminded you that the gospel is the good news? Mm. I went to speak to a group of people who were staff members and volunteers for CRU International. It used to be Campus Crusade. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, these were all Christians. They were all Christians, obviously, and they had all been raised before there was any lively church in Kazakhstan. They were raised under rigid communism. They were taught uh, there's nothing beyond this life. There is no God, atheism, and if you if you believe in God, you're an, a fool, and you'll also be penalized in our society. You can't go to university. You're going to be cut out. That's straight out of scripture, by the way, <laughs> where they say, you're going to be called a fool right. for Christ's sake. That's right. <laughs> so I would say, well, tell me your story. What happened? Now you're working for crew. So what happened? And it's almost like they had memorized the script because everyone told the same story. They said, well, we, we were true believers in communism. And yet we looked around us and we found out that we were miserable and it wasn't true. And our parents were alcoholics, and my father would beat us, and we were – this is a cold place, and we had no reason to live. And then somebody came up to us on a university campus and said, did you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Huh. I mean, we've all heard the four spiritual laws in the United States, and you just kind of say, oh, yeah, okay, there's a little formula for you. They had never heard this stuff. Right, it was new. And they would stop and say, <laughs> God, there, there is a God? God – loves me? Would you like to hear more? Yeah, I'd like to hear more. And I heard this again and again. I mean, it became almost a joke. I, I, I knew exactly what they were going to say next, but these were people I got to know and, and trust, and they weren't using a script. They were just telling what happened. I grew up under this regime. I found out it was wrong. 
and the gospel truly sounded like good news to realize that God cares about me, that God loves me, that I can connect with the God of the universe, the God who created this planet. Yeah. You know, Philip, uh, in the book, you discovered three types. I think it was a, a comment that a friend of yours made to you, but you discovered three types of Christians that outsiders respect the most. Mm. A lot of outsiders don't like many Christians, but there are three categories of people who they're a little more open to, who are effective. Artists, pilgrims, and activists. Let's start with activists. If I care about the environment, if I care about civil rights, if I care about some of these things, and I do it because of my Christian convictions, then somebody else who cares about those things has to stop and think, well, why do I care about these things? You know, I am I am representing what God cares about by my activism. So, again, go back to the civil rights movement. Most of them was a moral crusade, and most of the people leading it were clergymen, from John Lewis to Martin Luther King Jr. and Ralph Abernathy. You know, the the church led that. Right. Yeah. Abolitionists yeah. Right. were predominantly Christian. Same thing. Um, artists, I, I like to lecture the church on, you got to pay attention to these artists. They're hard to work with. You know, they, <laughs> Creative people. They look funny. Yeah, they look funny and they dress funny and, and they're, they're, they don't do well on committees. <laughs> but artists can get across profound eternal truths better than pastors, better right. than theologians because they sneak up in ways that that go directly to the heart. And I, I told some story of artists who do that. Well, one, one story I mentioned, because we're here in Colorado, one of the great artists of our day is a man named Mako Fujimura, Japanese. He's an artist. Japanese-American. He's an artist, incredibly talented. Once he was he was uh, called to do the White House Christmas card. I mean, he's, he's up at that level. But he does abstract expressionism in, a, in an old... Japanese form. And we had the 20th anniversary of Columbine just down the road here. Right. Uh, the shootings that, that uh, killed a whole bunch of people and kind of started the whole awareness of mass shootings in, in shootings. the United States and school shootings. The 20th anniversary was a sober event, and Mako came as an artist, and he, he showed us this craft called kintsugi. It's a Japanese word where they take these old pottery things that are broken into, like a bowl that's broken into four or five pieces, and they glue them back together using solid gold as the seams. And they create these beautiful things out of what had been thrown away, mm -hmm. picked out of a trash can. And he, he gave that as an illustration for the terrible tragedy at, at Columbine. And yet, out of that, these beautiful things had happened. And what people had feared as kind of a somber message turned into almost a celebration that that redemption can come even out of the, of the pain that like like Columbine we heard from survivors we heard from families we heard from the principals and art can do that art can express something that other people can't well and grab the heart absolutely and then the last category of pilgrims and we've been talking about that Jim that uh, we don't we don't win people by saying, I've got something and you don't. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> That's not Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Some people do. <laughs> we win people by saying, I'm just like you, and I found something that satisfied deeply in my soul. Yeah. And, and if you have ever experienced anything like this, if you've ever experienced confusion, pain, whatever, 
I, I know a place to go. I know the gospel is really good news. Give it a try. And if you start with that, I've got something and you don't, I'm going to help you. <laughs> that usually doesn't work. So but, but if you start, I'm just like you. I know what you're going through. And here's something that I found that really helped me. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. Do you enjoy accounts payable and receivable? Reconciling accounts and preparing reports. Are you able to perform highly detailed tasks? Named one of the best Christian workplaces in Canada, Focus on the Family Canada is looking for a full-time intermediate accountant to join our dynamic team in Langley, B.C., If you are someone you know feels called to serve God while growing in their skills, explore current job openings today at focusonthefamily.ca slash employment. Are you a pastor or ministry leader? Are your everyday ministry responsibilities taking a toll in your life? It's time to let God minister to you. Come away with your spouse and be quiet before God. Focus on the Family Canada has designed a seven-day retreat for couples in ministry. Come visit us at Kareth Retreats quiet place to receive from God and deepen your connection to Him, your spouse, and your calling. Find rest, find renewal, find reconnection with God. Find out more at carethretreats.ca. Searching for the right insurance at the right price isn't always a quick click on the internet. Deeks Insurance has been a licensed insurance brokerage since before Googling was a thing. So if you're looking to save on auto insurance that includes multi-vehicle discounts and first accident forgiveness or home coverage with enhanced water options, then start your search by typing Deeks Insurance. You'll already start saving on time spent searching the internet for the best insurance. Visit deeksinsurance.ca to get started with a quote. Deeks Insurance, where family matters. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. You have, in fact, uh, in the book, you have a story of a skeptic. I think her name was Gina Welch, and she began visiting a church and described an outsider's point of view. What was her story? Yeah, she was uh, an Ivy League um, person, PhD, who, as a sociology experiment, started going to Thomas Road Baptist Church, where Jerry Falwell Sr. at the time was pastor. And she was just trying to figure out what are these evangelicals and maybe write a thesis about it. <laughs> and to her surprise, she found that she was she was just cared for. She, you know, the word compassion, Jim, compassio, comes from to feel with. And she found that people had compassion toward her, that she would look forward oh, I'm going to go on on Sunday. I'm going to be in that Sunday school group again. And they know some of what I've been going through, and they care, and and they draw it out. So she doesn't talk about I I became a Christian because of this experience, but she she talks about the the way her perspective changed. She thought these were going to be these, you know, these right-wing, uptight, hillbilly types, you know. And instead she found, no, they're human beings, much like me, and they care about me. And they have a community that they yeah. can bring their honest struggles to every week. It was a, it was a shock for her. And um, I think we need much more of that kind of cross-fertilization from both directions. In, right. In her direction, it was the liberal who had these preconceptions about what an evangelical was. And, and we need our own perspectives changed, as you've talked about, 
and expanding. Well, and the reality is if she lands in a different church, she might have had those presuppositions reinforced, right? I mean, true. Absolutely. I mean, it really came down to the leadership of that particular church and and what they were expressing, what the people expressed. You know, in that regard, Philip, um, this caught my attention years ago when I stepped into the role as president focus, but um, it dawned on me we have this, I think, uh, non-essential battle going between what I call orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Mm. So the orthodoxy is speaking God's truth, and, you know, we're a communications ministry, so we that's what we right. do. We try to express God's truth and have programs like this one to talk about the love of God as well. But, you know, his grace, his truth, the whole theme of what we've talked about. And then there's orthopraxy, which is the doing of the word. And I think, at least in Western culture, maybe that's one of the great failures from early Christianity, that we are wonderful at speaking truth but have become a bit lazy, if I could use that word, at expressing the orthopraxy of the gospel, actually rolling up your sleeves, getting involved. One of the things that we started here was a foster adoption program. Mm. Um, It it was born out of my heart, you know, being a foster child. Um, I always felt like if the church were on the right things, there shouldn't be 100,000 kids in the foster care system waiting for adoption. Right. And it's a tough road, believe me. uh, We have fostered 15 children. Hmm. It's not an easy task, and not everybody's cut out for it. I get that. But if you look at 100,000 kids out of the 400,000 that are in the foster care program, and there's over 300,000 churches, that's one child every three churches. Hmm. Can we get that done? (laughs) I mean, and talk about changing the brand of Christianity in America. You know, I'd love to see that New York Times headline that says Christian Church wipes out waiting foster care adoption list. Wouldn't that change things? It would. There's a theologian from Croatia, you may know the name, Miroslav Volf. I've I've met him. Have you? Okay. I think he teaches at Yale now. And he said, said, as civilization changes and grows less and less friendly to Christianity, we have to change our approach. Uh, and I'm kind of putting words in his mouth here, but he, he said, in the old days, I mean, Billy Graham could go to any stadium in the United States, fill that stadium with people, and he'd stand up there and say, the Bible says, and, and people would come forward and right. respond. He said, you tr- try that now. There are very few evangelist preachers who could fill a stadium anywhere in the United States. And if you stand up and say, the Bible says, people will say, well, so what? I don't believe the Bible. You know, the Bhagavad Gita says something else. Who knows what's true? Society has changed that much in our lifetimes. So he said, the best way I know to get across the gospel is what he calls hands to heart to head. You reach out with your hands acts of mercy, exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Foster program, feeding the hungry, responding in a refugee crisis like Afghanistan was. Hands, you reach out with acts of mercy. That affects people's hearts. Why do you do this? Why do you care about me? Oh, well, here's why. And finally, you get to the head. We used to start with the head. Here's what you should believe. Right. But things have changed. Reach out with your hands first. It affects the heart. And then they're open to that head knowledge. So true. In the book, you mentioned a British skeptic, Matthew Paris, who pointed out the benefits of Christian evangelism in South Africa. I mean, again, he wasn't a Christian, but when he looked at it, what did he see? 
Yeah, he he grew up in South Africa. I think he might have been a, a missionary's kid, but he strayed far from the faith and he calls himself an atheist now. But in it was in the Guardian newspaper. He wrote an article and said, "I got to admit that aid programs alone don't solve the problems in Africa. Uh, people who just kind of toss bags of rice out of a helicopter or something, you know, <laughs> uh, that the Christians who are there." really care, and they express that care. So with their own hands, they hand out bowls of rice, and that's such a different thing than, say, the UN, you know, just coming in and, and doing a job to, to distribute food. And he he said, it's not enough to convert me, but i got to say there's a huge difference in someone reaching out with their hands with acts of mercy. It's, it's just, it's different. Well, and the idea, I think it explained that Faith has made an impact. It's what makes the biggest impact in Africa. Boy, that's true. Uh, so many of those. And that's countries, a non-believer saying that. <laughs> that's a non-believer saying that. And the statistic I've heard, Jim, is that today, this day, while we're sitting here, thirty thousand people will become Christians in Africa today. Unlike in America, happens every day. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's the difference, right? Yeah. It seems like the spirit is at work in, especially third world countries. Yeah. I um, was asked to speak one time. It was right when the century changed, the year 2000. And so I was speaking at this place, and I went back and kind of reviewed church history to see what had happened in the last 2,000 years. And, it, of course, the movement started in the Middle East, but mm-hmm. most of the places that Paul visited and wrote his letters to, there are no churches left there. They're all bulldozed. They're in Turkey. Right. They're in Muslim control, or they're all gone. Then And then it went to Europe and, and was there for about a 1,000 years. And then things started changing. And then it jumped over to the United States, and we were and still are the center of global outreach for the faith. But the real exciting part of the faith is in places like the Philippines and the underground church in China and Africa. And I, I, I came up with this revelation that God moves, not God moves, you know, but <laughs> Packs up his bag and moves. <laughs> Leaves I mean, the he, scene. Yeah, he used to be in the Middle East. Then he went to Europe, and then he went to the United States, North America, and then now he's all over the place. <laughs> and and the real active parts are in in a lot of the most challenging places in the world. And I I concluded that God goes where He's wanted, hmm. and the more prosperous and stable a society gets, think of Europe, think of the United States now. Then people say, well, I, I could be watching football on television on Sunday. I don't have to go to church. I could be doing uh, – I could be just accumulating more and more. Why should I care about poor people in the world? Right. We don't really need them right. as much. I mean, it, that's right. I don't mean My that. My life goes pretty well right, here. Right, but that's what we say. We do. And, and God never forces himself, never twists our arms. God just says, I'll, I'll find somebody who does need me. And admits it and wants me. Boy, that's so true. Philip, this has been so good. Thank you for being with me. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure to discuss these things. We haven't solved them all, but (laughs) a few few along the way. Yeah, thank you so much. What a great two-part conversation, uh, Jim, that you had with Philip Yancey. And uh, for the listeners, a reminder that we're here for you to help in your spiritual journey. If this is the first time you're hearing about the gospel, the good news, 
Um, or maybe you're rediscovering that message, as Philip did, get in touch with us. Our website has a free booklet you can download. It's called Coming Home, and it really is a nice readable summary of the gospel. And you can find that at focusonthefamily.ca. And wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, we'd encourage you to get a copy of Philip's great book, Vanishing Grace. When you order the book directly from Focus on the Family Canada, all the proceeds will go right back into helping families and strengthening marriages. Please give generously to Focus Canada today. Donate and uh, get your copy of Vanishing Grace, Whatever Happened to the Good News, when you call 800-232-6459 or visit focusonthefamily.ca. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team here, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ.